Today's podcast is sponsored by Needle and Foot Fine Fabrics. This online fabric shop opened in January of 2017 with an ever-growing collection of modern fabrics. Specializing in curated fat quarter bundles, Needle and Foot makes it possible to collect your favorite lines without breaking the budget. Use the code WALSHYNAPS15 to save 15% on your purchase. Check them out at Needle and Foot on Etsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 103 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about cross-stitch with my guest, Jamie Chalmers, also known as Mr. X-Stitch. Jamie took up cross-stitching 15 years ago, and he has never looked back. Since establishing the Mr. X-Stitch website in 2008, he's been showcasing new talent in the world of textiles and stitching, and has curated a number of stitch-based expositions in the UK and Ireland. Jamie is an accomplished and internationally exhibited artist in his own right, and the curator of Push Stitchery, part of a series of books published by Lark, showcasing the work of contemporary embroidery artists from around the world. He writes articles for textile publications and is the founder of X-Stitch, a new cross-stitch design magazine, which we'll be talking about. Jamie is an active leader in the online stitch community and what he has dubbed the new embroidery movement. He loves introducing new people to the benefits of embroidery from a creative and well-being standpoint and is proud to be an ambassador for the craft. And he's also the dad of a three-month-old baby girl. So Jamie Chalmers, welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, I'm in Boston. And where are you located? Uh, I live about an hour north of London uh, in the UK. So uh, what am I, five hours in the future? So if you need (laughs) to know what happens in the future, I'll tell you later. Okay, thank you. Um, Thanks for letting (laughs) me in on that. So let's go back a little bit to that moment when you were first introduced to cross-stitch. So It sounds like it was about nine or so years ago. You were getting ready to go on vacation, I think, to Canada, and Mm. you wanted something to do on the plane, which many of us like to, you know, sort of find something to keep us busy on a long uh, overseas flight. So you, how did you come across cross-stitch as the thing? Yeah, so it was, it was actually, I think now close to about 15 years ago. But okay. yeah, I mean, I was, I went into a haberdashery shop with my wife uh, for reasons I don't really know. But I just spotted this Art Nouveau head of a cross-stitch kit up on the wall. And I just thought, I was just like, that would be funny. Imagine what people thought if they saw a man of my size, because I'm like six foot tall and I've got a bald head and stuff. But imagine what they saw, would think if they saw a man doing cross-stitch. And that was like the sponsoring thought. I've always been... The kind of person like I'm not I'm not very conformist if that makes sense like I like the thought of doing cross stitch never struck me as something I would never do it did just strike me as something funny because I was aware that typically it's what you would expect old ladies to do so I picked up the kit and then when we got to Canada I didn't have the nerve to do it on the plane because I had a little look in the bag and they were like 30 colors and it, <laughs> it frightened me slightly but I got to Canada and I sort of got it out and managed to muddle my way through the first part of it and before too long I'd kind of fallen I suppose, in love with it. Or certainly I was like, well, ready to flirt with it for a while. Um, Because cross-stitch, have you done cross-stitch? 
You know, I did a little tiny bit in high school. We bought one of those really awful kits. I think it had like a cow on it and maybe a fence. Mm -hmm. And it was really terrible. My sister, I think, actually bought it, but she was like a little too young for it. So I tried to help her. And that's kind of been my entire uh, experience with it. That's fine. I mean, for some people it sticks and for some people it's an absolute nightmare. But um, I just really liked it because there's this sort of repetition um, and because you can only stitch as fast as you can stitch, it just generally tends to slow you down a bit. So you get this slowness, you get this repetition, and it sort of soothes your soul. You know, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness, colouring in, all those sorts of things. But I think anybody who does a creative pursuit knows what it's like to be in that moment when you're making a thing. And I think that cross-stitch in particular, it's, it's quite uncomplicated. You know, the stitch is a very simple thing to do, and it's very repetitive. So it doesn't take long before you get into this just nice, sense of well-being that comes from it and that was the thing that got me um and it kind of like everything kind of went from there really so do you generally find yourself to be somebody who kind of either rushes or is always busy or is it has a hard time um sort of settling down or settling your mind i it's weird i, I always thought i was going to write some memoirs and they'd be called you're so laid back if you're any more laid back you fall over because <laughs> i think people always thought i was quite a sort of chilled out person um, I do have a lot of things to do. There's a real irony, to be honest, with what has happened in my journey to being Mr. X-Stitch in that now I'm so busy being Mr. X-Stitch, I don't really get much time to do any cross-stitch, which is kind of, of cool. Of course, of course. That's true. But um, I think, I don't know, it was just that thing of, you know, in in the previous times I might have spent time playing video games, which kind of get you kind of wired and a bit wound up and very frustrated. And it was really nice to find a pastime that was quite the opposite. You know, you can sit in front of the telly doing it, but you're making a thing. And at the same time, you're just slow and conscientious and creative. And it was just, it's just a really powerful thing. And I mean, I do, you know, loads of workshops and stuff like that. And it's, it's nice when I go to a school and do a workshop. There's been plenty of times when I've had a class full of kids who are a bit rowdy and this and that and the other. And I wander in with my tattoos and my vague attitude and stuff like that. And, but after a while of teaching them cross-stitch and they get into it, then it's almost like we have to put the radio on or something because the room is silent because they're all kind of into it and in that space. And that's, that's the beauty of it. That's the thing I love doing. Mm, yeah. And, and it's interesting to me too that, from the very beginning of your introduction to cross-stitch, the irony or sort of the oddness you felt of being this man with this kind of, um, you know, sort of tattooed and bald and, you know, aesthetic, um, doing cross-stitch, what it, it seemed like two things that didn't really go together. And that was part of the appeal from you for you from day one. Yeah, I mean, definitely... Because I, I did this first cross stitch, which is an Art Nouveau head, and I framed it and I gave it to my mum, and she loves it. Um, and then I went on to do um, the Kiss by Klimt, which I never finished because I had too many stitches. And I did a couple of others, but there wasn't anything that reflected my taste. And I think that was what prompted me to get some software called PC Stitch, which I then used to make my own patterns. And then I started an Etsy store, and it kind of went from there. But all the time, it was just this thing of going, it looks as though cross stitch is meant to be for a certain person of a certain type. And, you know, I, I like kittens and I like country cottages, but I have no desire to cross-stitch those. And, and to find things that were different was part of the challenge. And I think I've always kind of had that thing. When I started my website in 2008, it was a thing of sort of taking this stuff seriously, but not taking it too seriously. And I think that's probably like my main ethos. Like mm. I really struggle with being sincere for too long because it kind of hurts. And so I have to make a wisecrack or something. Got it. And, and in the same way, I don't have time for people who are very 
sincere in this must be the only way that it's done and it's holier than thou and stuff because in the real world i don't i think you know it's a kind of a bit of a free-for-all and so anybody can do things the way that they want and so you know when i started the website in 2008 at first i would just talk about the stuff i was doing but over time i started featuring the work of other people and then observed that some people were doing rude things and some people were doing funny things and some people were doing pop culture things and things that you just didn't see in the mainstream but they had a place because it's all part of that kind of creative sphere and i was able to use my novelty as you know a man who goes i do embroidery as a sort of tool to then share these other things, which challenge that kind of preconception. Mm, it's almost like your identity was um, an asset and that it opened the door to doing things differently. It's undoubted that being, being the man that I am, being someone who's a proud ambassador of embroidery and needlework and having been around for as long that I've seen enough of it and made sufficient connections, but I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't a novelty, you know, the things I've got, like the tattoos of X's on my arm, and I've got a little necklace that says Mr. X Stitch, and I have all these gizmos and things that I take when I do workshops. But that's all kind of show business. And it all emphasizes that novelty because that's the thing that then makes people think differently about it. Mm, so, so if it became a mainstream, in other words, if there were lots and lots of men who look like you um, around cross-stitching and it became sort of the new hip thing, which, you know, hey, it could happen, um, would you mm, then lose interest? I'd be out of a job. Mm. I'd be, <laughs> I think, I don't think I'd lose interest because the thing is, is I really like cross-stitch. You know, I don't get much time to do it, but that inner feeling is still the thing that is underpinning everything. That's the thing I want to teach to other people. Um, I feel that like my my role is evolved. Like I've met a lot of men who cross-stitch. I've met a lot of men who are better artists than me and men that are better designers than me and men that are better looking than me. And that's all fine. But I've ended up with this kind of curation slash ambassador role. And that's what I'm happy with. And I think that's probably what I can perpetuate because I don't want to be the guy who's like making the art that like makes you cry. I want to be the guy who shows you the guy that's making the art that makes you cry. Mm-hmm. I'm more comfortable with that kind of ambassador role. And that's ended up what has happened with the book and the magazine and the website and all those sorts of things. It's it's a bit about me, but it's more about the world of embroidery. And my bit is just, I'm going to make you think differently about embroidery. Look at it. It's marvelous. Mm-hmm. You're the bridge. Yeah. So so what were you doing at that moment, taking us back to, you know, when this um, trip and finding this cross-stitch kit and getting excited about cross-stitch for the first time? What were you doing professionally at that time? Um, I, I've been working up until recently. I was working for a children's charity that I've been working for for 14 years. So I think I was I think I was doing IT training at that point or something like that. Like I don't come from an art background. I didn't do art at school. I don't have any kind of formal art training. Um, And although that's a bit of a blow because maybe I lack confidence in certain areas, you know, I'm not very good at drawing. I'm much more comfortable with cross-stitch software and doing stuff on computers. I've got a good sense of design, but I've not put in the effort. And that's why I would never claim to be an artist because I've not, you know, I've not done the groundwork. But it's also great in that I'm not bound by tradition. You know, I'm not beholden by the rules of, you know, this is art and this is craft and all those sorts of things. Like I see a thing, I like a thing, I share the thing. And I will, I'm not afraid to challenge people who go, well, cross-stitch can't be an art form because it can, you know, it's not the medium's irrelevant. It's the self-expression that is what makes the art. And so 
yeah, I sort of meandered into this and then was just fortunate over time to, you know, do research into professional blogging and those sorts of things, look at lots of design things. I've got a genuine interest in it. And then to just see thousands and thousands of amazing embroideries. So I guess I know a bit by now and I know what I like and I know what I don't like. But I'm not like, yeah, I've not done the proper, I don't know, the schoolwork for it or anything. Right. What did you study in school? Uh, psychology and sociology was what my degree is. Uh, okay. uh, to be honest, I mostly studied Guns and Roses and cigarettes <laughs> at school. I'm not going to lie. I was a bit of a wayward lad. <laughs> Um, okay. So, so when you, um, when you first began, what kinds of cross stitch were on the market? Like what kinds of designs you found that first Art Nouveau piece? Um, but what else was out there at that time? Because I feel like timing is important here. You came on the scene right when sort of the indie craft scene and, um, craft blogs were first, you know, and Flickr were first really taking hold. And Mm. I'm just wondering what the market, if you can take us back to that time, what was the market like for cross-stitch designs? I'm going to say it was pretty barren, I think. Um, I mean, the the kits I found were from kind of art cross-stitch websites and stuff like that. Then obviously in my own journey, I found Etsy. And that was still back in the day when Etsy was just things that people had made and it was still quite sort of small. I can even remember when like Twitter was quite nice because you chat to people you knew, that sort of thing. Um, But but there was Etsy and then there was also Craftser, which was always a good one to have found because that had like loads of message boards of people that were doing things. And I remember at the time looking at America and it was around the time that like Raina Faye had done, was it, there was an indie craft film oh, whose name is. Yes. Um, yeah. That Faye, uh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, it'll come to me, but yes, yeah. there was an indie craft film that Faith Levine made. That's the one. Yeah. And so that happened pretty much at the time. And I was like, oh, man, this stuff like knitting, crochet. I was like, cross stitch is going to be really cool soon. And obviously now it's nine years later. But I tell you, cross stitch is going to be really cool soon. You just just have to wait. It's like that's always been the irony, I think, is you've seen I've seen these things come and like slowly but surely get more interesting. And definitely, I mean, Crafter was a good place to hang out. And I think Etsy kind of like enabled things to accelerate. I remember distinctly at the time when I started the blog, uh, there's a blog called Feeling Stitchy by uh, Flor Hernandez. So she's been around the same length of time as me. And the only other person I could find that was blogging about interesting things was Jenny Hart with her Sublime Stitching blog. And she would feature other artists as well. But it was a bit like we were the only three I can remember at the time doing it. And I'm really chuffed that Flora's still doing it. I mean, Jenny's, you know, she's a successful business person. So, but me and Flora like still blogging away. Yeah, yeah. I know. And I love people who are old time bloggers and are still here. I started blogging in 2005. So um, I love the people who are, you know, who, and I was on Craftster. For people who didn't, don't know what Craftster is or or was, I guess it's maybe still around, yeah, still but it's still yeah, there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Craftster was like a message board, basically, where you could connect with people and see what people were making. And they'd, it was like before everybody had a blog um, and certainly before social mm. media, it was just sort of a way to find people who were interested in craft. 
Yeah, and it was so cool because I remember turning up at the needlework boards there one day, and I can't remember when it was. It must have been like 2008 or something. And just it's like walking into a room where there are other people that are into the same thing as you. And it was amazing to find it and really important at the time because that helped me establish some of the friendships that I kind of like were really useful in the early stages of Mr. X Stitch. And then, yeah, Flickr. Flickr was really important because we set up a group called the Fat Quarter where people could join that and share their pictures and stuff. And that was a pivotal change because before that, when I was trying to find work that other people had done, I'd have to go and look for it. And then we set up the fat quarter and suddenly people were like dropping work in our direction. And that made life a lot easier in like maintaining the kind of rhythm of doing the posts and those sorts of things. Right. And how often were you publishing back then? This is sort of in the early days. Did you have an idea of what, you know, the schedule is going to be like? I'm going to post every day, you know, every other day. What was it going to be? It was... Like, so there was, there was a bit of a peak. I had a good friend called Bridget who was helping me out as like my editor in chief. And between the two of us, we were managing to do a post every day. I think I went mental for a while and tried to do two posts every day. But what I realized fairly early on was it was good to have themed posts. So fairly early on in the scheme of things, I ended up with um, the cutting and stitching edge, which is on Thursdays, which just featured an art person kind of that I was interested in or someone contemporary. Then we did uh, not safe for work Saturdays, which featured swearing or pornography. Then we did too cute for Mr. X stitch Tuesdays. And then I managed to start getting other people who had certain columns involved. So Luke Haynes was the first person who did the quilty pleasures column, which was writing about quilts. Zoe Williams, who's a fantastic needle felter, she still does the felter skelter column. Um, there was a, a lady called Moxie who was a needle felt artist before that. But I, ju- I just managed to kind of slot in people who would write once a month about a thing that they liked and then just kind of build in those place markers. And then we came up with the phrase stitchgasm, which is where you see an embroidery and you go, oh, that's the thing. And so we just slot stitchgasms in where we needed. So for a long time, I was trying to do like a post a day just to kind of have that frequency. It did get a little bit awry, and I think as as other projects have come on board, the schedules kind of got a little bit loose. But I've also realized that's all right. Like I used to be very kind of uptight about it. And I've certainly mellowed out because I don't think anybody died because a blog post didn't come out on time. Right. And also, there's just so many other ways to access information now. There was a time in which blogging every day was the best way to build an audience, but that's not Mm. necessarily true now. And sometimes, you know, having a a less frequent posting schedule, but a really solid evergreen set of content can be a better strategy. So things have changed as all of these different social media platforms have come on board. Yeah, definitely. And I would always say that to people. Like I would always say, even if you just do one post a month, if you're comfortable with that and your audience knows you do one post a month, then they'll be ready for it. And it's it's like managing the other people's expectations rather than, you know, a post a day for three months and then burn out and you go silent for six weeks or whatever. It's yeah, that kind of frequency that you're comfortable with is the most. So, so like one of the things that's worked really well for me lately is Instagram. And, you know, I started probably getting into that about three and a half years ago. And I just decided before I get out of bed in the morning, I'll just do a post and I'll share somebody's work. And that's paid off. You know, I'm just on the verge of 30,000 followers on Instagram. And it has been just every single day doing that thing. But that's good because it only takes like a couple of minutes. Whereas like writing a blog post and all of those sorts of things is more time consuming. But you've got to be comfortable with it because you have to consider that if you're successful, you're going to be doing it forever. Right. Yeah, there's no way out. Um, (laughs) I know. I, I sometimes feel that for sure. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Needle and Foot Fine Fabrics. 
Needle and Foot is owned by Bernie Kringle. Growing up, her father owned two fabric stores in the Silicon Valley. And as a teenager, she worked in the shop on Saturdays and in the summer. She's one of six girls and was encouraged to sew and made lots of her own clothes. And she even started quilting at age 17. Later on, when she got married and started a family, she sewed lots of clothes for her children and her home. Jumping forward to 2012, Bernie retired from her career in human resource management. And with only one teenager out of her four children still living at home, she had time to sew again. It was like finding a dear old friend. She loved sewing blogs and in 2014, with her son's help, started Needle and Foot, her quilt blog. She decided it was time to take the next leap and start selling high quality quilting cottons in her Etsy shop in January of 2017. And that was when her first fabric shipment arrived. She's been continually adding to the shop as quickly as she can since then. Bernie creates custom fat quarter bundles from parts of various fabric collections. And this enables customers to purchase a set of fabrics that work well together without having to pay for the entire fat quarter bundle. These are really popular, as are her half-yard bundles, which she also custom cuts. So check out Needle and Foot on Etsy and go ahead and use the coupon code WALSHENAPS15 and you will save 15% on your purchase. You can use that code as many times as you would like now through the end of September 2017, which is awesome. So check them out, Needle and Foot on Etsy. And thank you so much, Bernie. And now back to my conversation with Jamie. You've always been, it sounds like, about um, featuring other people's work, highlighting work you find interesting and bringing that to a larger audience through you. That's been sort of your role, as you said, like an ambassador sort of role. Yeah. You've called yourself the kingpin of modern embroidery. <laughs> so so that, yeah. that in that sort of role. And so you, it sounds like you're using your Instagram exactly in that same strategy. So you're finding beautiful work by other artists on Instagram and then reposting it and tagging them. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, when I first started doing it, I hadn't really got my act together. But fortunately, thanks to Instagram, particularly like Instagram connecting with Dropbox was really helpful because I had an archive of all the pictures of the posts that I'd done on Mr. X Stitch. So I was able to trawl back through old content from the website and reshare that. And it, it was always going to be that idea. Same with the website, just introducing people to cool embroidery and trying to make Every single day, it was different to the day before, you know. So you might see a nice thing, then a nasty thing, then a cool thing, then a dark thing, then a light thing, then a whatever. Um, and just keep doing that and whatever I kind of felt the mood of. But what's been great is obviously, I'd say definitely in like the last two years or something like that, the pace of it all is picked up. And I see a lot more stitches. And obviously, then you have your hashtag strategy. So it's like looking to see the people you admire, what hashtags they use, trying to work out which ones work really well for you. For some reason, creativity found has been bang on my best hashtag ever. I put it on pretty much everything. But there's all, all of those kind of techniques which seem to help get it under the nose of more people. But then the, the thing that always gets me, you think you know what you're doing and you're doing a thing. And then one day you post a picture of an avocado and it gets like 1,500 <laughs> likes or 15,000 likes. And I swear, avocados are trending so hard on <laughs> Mr. X Stitch is ridiculous. Okay, so uh, avocado pictures. And then yeah. you said that hashtag was, did you say creativity found? Yeah, creativity found. I mean, okay. there, there were a few that worked. I know that there's quite a few, you get your design sponge ones and stuff. If I've got a colorful thing, then for some reason, ABM, and I, I'll be honest, I don't know what ABM short oh, for. Oh, it's a beautiful mess. Oh, there you go. ABM <laughs> color, color lovers and mm -hmm. ABM, uh, what is it? Life is beautiful. Those mm -hmm. are always good. 
Um, but a lot of the time, what I try and do with hashtags particularly, though, is I'll explain what the piece is. So I always make sure if it's a piece of hand embroidery and a hashtag hand embroidery, or if it's applique or quilting or whatever. And then there's a few bits that you can riff off the back of that. So I'll usually hashtag what the thing is. And then if it's an animal or something, you know, if it's a dog, then you bang a dogs of Instagram on there because, you know, that will probably get a bit of traction. And it's just trying to make sure that the hashtags reflect what it is. But at the same time, I don't tend to do more than about half a dozen. And I always make sure there's a Mr. X each one at the back because it does. It frustrates me slightly when someone, even if it's in the first comment below, but there's like 50 hashtags, you just feel like that's a bit overkill. Mm-hmm. So okay. I try to. Yeah, no, no. this is good. It's really good to hear your strategy for sure, because I think that that's something that um, people are really curious about. Like, how do you, you know, make this work for you? Um, so that's really generous of you to share. No, no, that's yeah. cool. I always, I always think hashtags are a bit like a side, you know, it's a bit like the sort of thing that you might mention on the side of it or whatever. So I do make sure that they're informative and then I will drop a couple in because hopefully it will just place it in a sort of bigger stream of people paying attention. Yeah. And I think that your consistency and saying to yourself, well, I'm just going to do this every single morning um, mm. is also a really big piece of, of success, you know, is sort of not being inconsistent, but always doing it every single day. So, um, so that's good. And, and it sounds to me too, like, you know, you, you really have a taste for the irreverent, like you're not afraid mm-hmm. to post things that have curse words. You're not afraid of sex, sexual content, you have stitch gasm. So you're, you know, you're certainly not afraid there. You're not afraid of, I don't know, things that might, um, strike people as controversial or as, you know, offensive even. And I wonder, you know, when you do post those things, if you ever get pushback or even in the early days, maybe not so much now, I'm not sure, but whether people, you know, say this doesn't belong, you know, on a website for stitching or, you know, keep this out of, of, you know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know if you ever get that kind of pushback. In the in the early days, there were a couple of things that were quite interesting that happened. So I remember once posting a picture of some porn embroidery or some description that someone shared. And and with the, with the sex and the swearing, right? I always argue that for some people, like they'll see a swear word in embroidery, and it will make them realise that that's okay and that it's a thing, and it might actually engage them and make them want to try embroidery for the first place. So I think that these things have their merit. I think that they. Not not everything, you know, you can see a hundred C bombs and, and sometimes it's just a waste of time. But you know, I will only share things that seem to have a merit as far as I'm concerned. Um but I did share this piece once and then a lady emailed and was really upset about it and stuff. And I thought, well, okay, you're really upset about it, but you've taken the time to look at it. Now maybe I should be a bit better about that. So what we did with Not Safe Work Saturdays was we always made sure we had a safety picture of like a cute puppy or something. So when you saw the post, there was a picture of a puppy. Then there was a big warning that said, this is going to be rude. And then you had to click on a link to see the thing. So I put that in place so that if anybody did want to then complain about the content, we'd made them jump through three hoops to get there and it kind of dissolved their argument. So I thought that was quite useful. Um, And then, oh, and then one time I... (laughs) This is going to be bad. I wrote a post where I was complaining about encaustic art, which I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of, but I appreciate that every art form has its place. So, you know, rubbing a wax with an iron and that sort of thing. Um, And also trowels, the gardening tool, that are kind of painted with flowers on them because Mm -hmm. they're not very good design and they're not very good tools. And so, But I did this ranty post about both of those things. And then a lady came back and said, well, I'm disappointed because here's some encaustic art that I do and it's, quite nice. And I agreed, it was quite nice. Um, 
But what it made me realize is that like my website, Mr. X Stitch, isn't about the opinions of Jamie Chalmers. It's about the promotion of the world of embroidery and needlecraft. And that was the thing I was going to say about Instagram as well is it's not really about me. Like I feel a bit bad because I've got a daughter now and occasionally she slips in and I put a picture of her because she's adorable. But I don't really need it to be about me because I'm not really that interesting. Whereas the world of embroidery and needlecraft is amazing. And so it's easy for me to share those things. So I'm confident now, like I, I won't do anything that I genuinely think will offend people. I won't do anything that I think is just crap. And then I do have this thing that says it's not mean if it's hilarious, which is also quite useful. Uh-huh. Okay, good. That's good strategies for sure. Um, to sort of see, you know, what your approach is and how you let, um, I don't know, how you let some of that feedback uh, change your behavior or shape your behavior and change your policies and change how you're going to approach things and other pieces of it sort of slide off your back and say, well, that's, yeah. that's who I am. I mean, I do, I tailor my content, you know, I'll go and do workshops or presentations and, and tailor my content to suit the audience. But sometimes I've, I've got a presentation I do for embroidery guilds and stuff, and it's a slideshow of embroidery and needlecraft. And there's a few pieces in there that are near the knuckle, but then they're, they're not sexually explicit, but they sort of are. But I always say to people like, look away if you've never seen a naked body. And there's a couple of bits that have got like swearing in them. And I'm like, look away if you've never sworn. Because sometimes I think that people's like sensibilities like deny the reality of their situation. That makes sense. So some yeah. people are a little bit uppity, but actually if they stub their toe, they're going to swear like anybody the same as we all do. So it's just trying to dismantle that a little bit. And I respect people's opinions and I respect people's rights to not like the stuff that I show, which is normally where there's a friend of I'm in a little community choir in the village that we're in. And there's a friend of mine who's I say she's in her 60s and she follows me on Instagram and she always tells me off when I post a rude thing. So when I post a rude thing, I usually post a cute thing the next day because I'm just remembering that she's out there just to kind of like balance things back down again. Yeah, actually, I think talking to your readers like that and you have the advantage of seeing this person often in person, um, but it is really helpful because then you have a real human in mind when you're posting and it can really help Mm. you to make sure that you're posting something that actual reader wants to see and is going to be okay with. So, mm. um, so it sounds like, you know, from the beginning, you weren't just focusing on cross stitch. It was like cross stitch was the entry point and naming the site, Mr. X stitch obviously is, you know, cross stitch focus, but it's actually not really just about cross stitch. So tell us what the categories of stitching that are included are, and then what things sort of don't make the cut to be included on, you know, as far as types of craft uh, that don't mm. make the cut to be included on Mr. X stitch. But it's always been quite easy for me because when I started it, I kind of looked at what was out there and pretty much said, we don't do knitting because they've got ravelry, end of story. And we don't do uh, clothes making, dress making, because there's plenty of that. So, but it was pretty much anything in between. And what was interesting is when I started out, obviously I was into cross stitch, but then there was hand embroidery in its many different forms. And then machine embroidery, quilting, needle felting, plush toys, which is also meaning soft sculptures. Uh, more recently, though, we've included lace and millinery. And I'm, pl- I'm pleased that we have a millinery column. It's done by a girl called Kirsten Silverman, who's a milliner herself. And it's great because some somehow millinery seems to slip through the gap of, I don't know, it doesn't really necessarily get featured in like dressmaking and all those sorts of things. But it's a needle craft and it's pretty important. keeps your head dry. So it's nice to include that in there. And I'm fairly broad-minded about it, but we sort of have those cuts. Every now and again, a little bit of crochet sleeps in. But I do feel like, you know, 
there's a distinction there. And, you know, I, I often joke about it. Like, there's there's two jokes to make. One is I just don't do knitting because it's evil. But I know that it isn't. <laughs> but then I've also, I've got a crochet kit. And I always say that when I'm in the depths of despair in my 50s and I'm an alcoholic and stuff, that crochet kit will bring me back out again. But kind of for now, I'm just, yeah, just championing needlecraft. Because I think it's weird when you look at, the you know the broad perspective of what people think about craft you know knitting has been seen to be cool and crochet and people are more you know you can make clothes out of it it has a lot of versatility and a lot of the time particularly cross stitch as well tends to be more aesthetic you know it's it's not the most practical of needle forms and it just gets kind of disregarded as a consequence and even within the world of embroidery like cross stitch kind of gets disregarded because there are many more embroidery types that are more sophisticated and more elegant and more challenging and so it's always you kind of feel like cross stitch is just this little crappy thing that sits in the corner. And that makes me want to defend it and makes me want to just shout about it, which is why even though I'm aware of many different embroidery types and I've found a few and tried a few, I still always come back to cross stitch because it's humble, but it's amazing. And yeah, I think that's I, I call it a gateway craft because you start with cross stitch and you move on to harder crafts. Yeah. Now I have had another cross stitcher on the show in the past and she used actually that exact same term, which is sort mm. of fascinating. And have you tried needle points? I'm sort of fascinated by needle points in that, you know, at, um, I don't know if you know about TNNA, which is, you know, the, the trade mm. show for, for yeah. um, yarn and also for needlepoint and cross stitch here. And um, they have a, you know, a section for needlepoint businesses and these canvases people paint them, they're hand painted Mm. and they're quite expensive. They're in the hundreds of dollars and maybe more, I don't know. Um, But anyway, I I just, I feel like there's a needlepoint shop here in my town um, that I pass by all the time. I've only been in there once to buy some pearl cotton, but but it does seem to be like an aging population maybe. And I'm wondering if you've come across just out of curiosity, some young, you know, sort of either, maybe not young, but young at heart, modern, modern aesthetic, you know, needlepointers out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a few. And I mean, the funny thing about needlepoint and cross stitch, like they're, you know, in needlepoint is tent stitch. It's like half as difficult as cross stitch, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, my favorite needlepoint person who only does needlepoint is a girl called Hannah Bass. And what she does is maps. And she does maps of like London, New York, Tokyo, Brooklyn, like Dublin. She's done loads of them. And they're really like well-designed and brightly colored. And I'm doing one of Amsterdam that is taking me forever. <laughs> um, but it's really nice to just have that kind of needlepoint thing. There's a girl called Jenny Henry, who's got some great designs. There's another lady called Tina Francis. They've all got really good like design aesthetics. Pom-pom design is another one. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that cross-stitch tends to be small kits that you buy for like 20 quid over here. Whereas tapestry and needlepoint is essentially the same on a slightly bigger scale. The material costs are slightly higher, but somehow you have to spend like 80 quid on them. I always think I'm in the wrong business. But, it's, <laughs> yeah. but you know, essentially they're the same thing. They're both pixelated art forms. It's just one has a bigger canvas and uses wool and tends to just do that single stitch as opposed to the other, which uses cotton and does two stitches. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my the new magazine that I've got coming out, pretty much all the patterns in there, you could do as needlepoints if you wanted because you just have to wrap your brain about, you know, where the boundaries are and stuff like that. I see. Um, but it is, it is again, needlepoint almost gets even less credit because it's half as difficult as cross stitch. And yeah, there's just this mindset that says, you know, it's just old and fusty and all of those sorts of things. Whereas, yeah, a quick casual glance around, you put hashtag needle porn into Instagram is all I'm saying. There's a lot out there. Okay. Needle porn. Is that what you said? 
Yeah, but you know, tread carefully. Folks. Okay. <laughs> I'll take a look, um, but be warned, Mm -hmm. people. Um, Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about this blog because it is a contributor blog, your blog, Mm. um, Mr. X-Stitch. And I think that that's an interesting model and maybe a model some people could consider adopting because frankly, you know, maintaining a blog that you write entirely by yourself is a lot of work um, if you want to, you know, keep it up to date and current Mm. and all of that. So I'm wondering just sort of the nuts and bolts. So do you, is, is your blog built on WordPress? Yeah, so it's a WordPress blog. Uh, I'm the only admin, but I have several authors. The authors, bless them, like literally work for nothing because I I don't have any money for. Well, I mean, I'm working on it. Hopefully, I have some money through other streams that will enable to pay these people. But a lot of them just do it for the love of it. And what has been great is a lot of them have ended up getting a lot of good karma from it. So I know that there's been people who've written for me in the past who've, you know, managed to get a book as a consequence of doing it, or have certainly their recognition has spread a lot further. And to be honest, it blows my mind, like the way that Mr. X is thought of in needlework circles, considering I spent the first two years being convinced that like, however many readers I was getting a month, it was just my mum just repeatedly <laughs> looking at it and stuff, you know. But Your mum was just pressing I, refresh on the page. Honestly, honestly. <laughs> But no, I've just been, I think with a multi-author blog, like if you can pay people, it's brilliant. But I didn't want to go down a lot of the monetization routes because I didn't want to like have adverts that were irrelevant to needlework. I have a couple of advertisers and part of the deal is they write monthly columns. So Krynik have been with me for a long time, as have Urban Threads. So Krynik do, you know, it's fantastic. Um, Dina, who writes the column, um, just has loads of great ideas about things you can do with chronic threads. We had one on fly fishing recently, and the latest one she posted was how they make metallic threads. So she's always sharing really interesting content. And it's the same with Urban Threads. They do a digitized embroidery column where they show off what other people are doing, and it just reflects well on them and shows them to be you know, curators and experts and stuff like that. So I think is. It's finding that trade-off of going, you know, I can't nag anybody because I don't pay them anything. I ask them to do a thing once a month and it doesn't have to take a lot of work. And they seem quite content to do that because it reflects well on them and, you know, you get bits of feedback and stuff like that. So it's like I I sometimes can't believe I've managed to get away with it considering like, I mean, I don't really get paid anything directly out of the site either. The advertising pretty much covers the running costs of the hosting and stuff like that. But you get all these ancillary benefits of getting to do workshops and getting, you know, if you're lucky to have a book out and those sorts of things. So I'm a big believer in payment in karma. And yeah, it'd be nice to advertise, but it's, I, I, I've observed over time, like I noticed that the, the blogs that are the ones, the blogs that teach you how to make money blogging often use blogs that teach you how to make money blogging as an example, which is a bit tricky. It's like how to how to write a book that makes a million dollars. Well, what you do is you write a book called How to Write a Book That Makes a Million Dollars. You know, it's, it's a bit like that. And then there are lots of people where the adverts are incongruous to the content. And you can set up, you know, websites that do function as advertising platforms and provide content. But I didn't want to like sell out or, you know, we have a few affiliate Amazon links, but to be honest, they make about twopence a month because I don't like push it really hard. And I've gone through phases. Like sometimes I would, try and do a thing. I tried to put a pay gate in at one point, which meant that like maybe you'd read 10 articles free and after that you'd have to subscribe, but that didn't work partly on my fault and stuff. Um, I'm looking at Patreon because I think that might be useful. But again, I have to kind of carve the space to provide extra value to people over and above what we already do. 
But for now, I've realized that, you know, having a mailing list is probably the single most important thing you can do with any of these things, um, because then you've got permission marketing with people. But just, you know, if you want to have other people write for you, they've got to be into the thing that you're into. They've got to love it because you're getting them to do it for nothing. Um, And then you just have to be gentle with them and like ultra, ultra grateful every single day. Yeah. So do they come into the blog, like log into the back end of your site and actually upload their content themselves? Yeah. So they've all got author accounts. um, And so they can do all that. What I did quite a long time ago was I kind of wrote a guide of how I like posts to be done, you know, treatments of like tags and categories and images and uh, permalinks and all those sorts of things. So it's kind of like, this is like the style guide. And it's not like, what to write or how to write what you write, but just how to set the pictures, how to make sure the title is right and all of those sorts of things. So that tends to go out. And then when I've got a new author coming on board for the first couple of posts, I'll get them to do them as draft and then um, I'll check them and then set them for publishing. But after that, I kind of leave them to it. And what I do, and I need to make sure it works, but I use If This Then That, which is like one of the best automation tools ever. But I have a thing set up where on my Google Calendar, a week before a post is due, I have a reminder. And that reminder then triggers a Gmail to go to that person and say, hey, in a week's time, you should just have a post going out. And if there are any problems, let me know. And so that kind of ticks along behind the background and just keeps everybody reminded, or at least I think it does. It doesn't seem to upset them because they don't tell me. Um, but by doing that, then it's pretty much just they kind of have the stuff going on. And then what I try and do is just have a few stitch chasms in reserve so that if for some reason somebody can't post a thing and I feel like there's been a bit of a gap anyway, then I can just slot one of those in and some content goes out and it keeps people happy. Mm, I think that's a great system. Really, really good and really good for people to hear, myself included, um, (laughs) to have that sort of reminder, sort of automated reminders that go out to people who are your contributors. And then also to have contributors be able to be in control of the process through a style guide and uh, some initial training, you know, in the first few posts from you to make sure, Mm. you know, with the draft post to make sure that everything is done correctly and is the way that you like it to be. But that's a way to, to run a contributor blog. And I also think it's really interesting to think through direct monetization of a blog versus sort of more indirect monetization. So what you're saying is, you know, you've done a little bit of direct monetization with making ads um, where, you know, the advertisers get a chance to post um, and that sort of thing. And they're, they're going to pay you that a fee for those. But other than that, really, it's, it's very indirect. So it leads to, as you said, karma, where you get opportunities, mm. your contributors get opportunities to write a book or write a magazine article or do other things. But, um, but it, there's no ads there that are sort of just, you know, waterfall ads that are running in the background that might not be um, appropriate or related to the content and that sort of thing. You're, you're shying away from that. And do you have, um, or have you thought about doing products like an ebook or um, patterns of, of that are sort of PDF patterns, kind of that kind of, uh, you know, income that just sort of is passive? It's weird. I've, I mean, I'm a massive fan of passive income. It has to be said. So, I mean, that's where I've got a few Amazon affiliate links. And, you know, I've tried to have a few posts of like, here's five great cross-stitch books or whatever. Passive income is definitely the way I want to live my life. Um, and I'm a big fan of like the Smart Passive Income podcast. Podcasts, and, yeah, me too. You know, I love the four hour work week and all of those sorts of things. Um, what I've learned is that for some reason, despite my best efforts, uh, I ju- I'm just crap at selling 
PDF patterns on Etsy. Like I've got quite a few on there and they're reasonable quality of product, but for some reason they just don't sell as well as other people that do other things. And it used to stress me out, but then that that was always the thing. So I set up Mr. Xstitch to support the Etsy site, but actually Mr. Xstitch has taken over and rendered the Etsy site somewhat irrelevant, sort of. Um, about three years ago, I think it was, I did a 52 challenge. No, it was two years ago because it was my 40th birthday. And I thought, right, every week I'm going to do a cross-stitch pattern and I'm just going to give it away for free. So I did that and it nearly killed me. But I just pumped loads of patterns out for free. Um, and they're still kind of floating around the net and stuff. But it it's tricky. The, the thing with cross-stitch is it's really simple and it's really easy to learn. And like sometimes I've been invited to do workshops for people and they've charged a ticket price of like £25 to learn cross-stitch. And it's almost too much for something that's so simple, despite the fact that it can change your life and you can do it forever. I'm not necessarily comfortable with that. And so in many ways, a lot of the things that I have to offer, I'm not comfortable in monetizing in the way that you might do if you were selling, you know, if you're a professional photographer and you wanted to give someone the skills to do that or something like that. It's kind of weird that cross-stitch falls into this weird area of like, I can't really, you know, promise people or I wouldn't expect to people to pay a lot of money for this how to cross stitch guide necessarily because you can find it anywhere or you can just learn from your nan or whatever mm. so so I've always had that like reservation in in thinking about things that I could sell and you know I've tried plenty over the years and just seen them not really raise any income so now I'm just a bit more philosophical about it um but then you know I have ended up with a book and a magazine as a consequence over time. So I suppose it kind of plays out in the end. Right. So let's talk a little bit about Kickstarter. So you mm. uh, have a magazine, which you just talked about um, coming out and sounds like it's going to be uh, circulating around maybe right around the time that this podcast airs. And mm. so um, so you met your funding goal on Kickstarter. You launched a Kickstarter campaign. It sounds like you met your funding goal in just a few days. Um, how much was the goal? Yeah. So what had happened, I mean, prior to that, um, I decided I wanted to do a calendar just, just to backtrack a little bit. Um, about three years before that, I'd, uh, I'd done a workshop and got paid quite well for it. So I decided to make a Mr. X stitch calendar. So 12 months, you know, picture on each one and stuff. And I, I paid for that out of my own pocket and it didn't quite sell as many as it could have done. And I was a bit like, mm. so the following year I did that on Kickstarter and actually that met its goal. And it just got me thinking about if you've got a reasonable product that people will pay for it. So I did the calendar for two years on the trot and we'll do another one this year. But then, yeah, what happened was at the end of last year, I found out I was going to get made redundant from my day job. And weirdly, it coincided with the closure of a cross-stitch magazine over here in the UK that had been going for 22 years. And it just struck me as odd because I, I'm well-versed with the way the cross-stitch magazine sector works and, and what the why it doesn't have the momentum that maybe it could do. Uh, this magazine closed. And what I did was I sent out a questionnaire to my mailing list, which at the time was about 1,500 people, just asking what people might want from a cross-stitch magazine and what they thought of the situation and stuff like that. And in one day, I got 750 responses, which is like virtually unheard of. Like I used to do research and like if you're lucky, you get like 2% return. So to get like 40% return was unheard of in one day. But it just made me think that there was something in it. So I decided... I've done desktop publishing for years. I've been a curator for years. I kind of know what I like. I know what cross-stitch patterns, you know, I, I just had this understanding of what I would do differently. And I thought, do you know what, sod it. I'll try it because I've got nothing to lose. So I set a Kickstarter with a goal of £6,000 over 30 days, which would enable me to print, uh, I think it was 2,000 copies of one issue. 
plus paying people for the licensing and stuff and just, you know, putting down the idea that I had. Uh, and I, I sent that out to my mailing list and then I went to bed. And then when I woke up in the morning, I already had a thousand pounds and I hit the six thousand pounds in four days and then went on to raise just short of uh, 14,000 pounds. My goodness. Wow. First yeah. of all, congratulations. That's uh, an incredible response. And um, what was the name of that magazine that went out of business after uh, two decades in business, um, the Cross-Stitch magazine? Yeah, it was called World of Cross-Stitch. And it was oh, one right. of these ones that specialized in like quite big designs and stuff like that. And it was just a shame. And I think, you know, I, I understand the reasons why the, the magazine industry is the way it is sometimes. You know, it's a lot about advertising, selling and stuff like that. So I, I could understand why it happened. But at the same time, I was very aware of the resurgence in independent magazines. Um, I really like indie magazines. I, I bought one about Lego, adult fans of Lego fairly recently. And there's, um, oh, it's one of my recommendations later. We'll talk about that. Okay, but, we'll get there. Um, but yeah, you yeah, love, yeah. so this magazine is not going to be advertised advertising funded. Is that right? You're going to use the Kickstarter um, and then maybe subscription model or how are you going to fund future issues? So it's a little bit of everything. What I've been fortunate in the, yeah, with the Kickstarter funding, I had a few people who uh, bought advertising slots, quarter of a page, eighth of a page. And so their adverts are in there. But I've also been lucky over the years to develop a really good relationship with DMC, the thread company, and Zweigart, who were the people that invented AIDA, like the cross-stitch fabric. And so knowing that, like, I really like both of those companies and the people that work for them, I approached them directly for advertising and managed to get funding from them um, for the magazine as well. So, but what was cool was I managed to sort of dictate the way I wanted the adverts to be. So for instance, um, Zweigart, you know, they do advertising in various places, but I pitched them and they've got um, advertising on the inside cover, front and back. But basically what it is, is just it looks like one big piece of AIDA. And then there's just little bits of writing on the front cover or uh, inside cover. All it says is like the code of the Christmas red fabric. And then on the back, it says a bit about the the process and stuff like that. So it's a bit different to normal advertising. And similarly with DMC, I pitched them an idea that I'd had about, you know, because what's great with DMC, there's so many different colors that you can kind of like take a picture and, you know, pretty much stitch it. And I pitched them this idea and we've got bespoke adverts from them that you don't see in any other magazine as well. Mm. So that's the kind of approach I want to take. I want it to be, you know, I want it to grow and flourish. I want definitely subscribers. The, the initial print run is 3,000, but I know that in its heyday, Cross Stitcher magazine used to do like 60,000 copies and they do it once a month. And mine's going to be once a quarter. I want to get as many subscriptions in as I can and then also probably get people to pay for it because that enables me to then pay people to help me run it. And also, hopefully, you know, if I look at my Mr. X-Stitch ecosystem, if people are paying for advertising in the magazine, it might be that some of my beautiful columnists might even earn a shekel or two out of the back of it as well. So I'm looking at it as a tool to generate income to support like the whole of that ecosystem. Right. But and I'm this not... is, this is, um, sorry, this is a, this is a, a pattern magazine. Is that right? Is that the main substance? Yeah. So it's a cross-stitch design magazine, much like ones like Cross-Stitcher and Cross-Stitch Crazy and those sorts of things. But what I decided to do is rather than dictate what patterns should be made and then ask designers to do them, I turned the idea on its head because basically there are loads of cross-stitch designers out there that I'm aware of, ones that do it for a living, ones that are doing it on Instagram, ones that are brand new. 
Um, and they've all got their own creative paths. And so all I do is I say, right, the theme of the first issue is revolution. And then I get people to hit me with pitches on their response to revolution. So we've got designs in the book. Some of them are political, but some of them are circular. Some of them are things that revolve. Like one of the best patterns we've got is by a guy called Tom Katsumi, who has never designed for a magazine before. And he's done what's called a soatrope. So basically it's a 16 panel cross stitch of a cat jumping and if you construct the zoetrope pattern that we've got and you put it on a record player and it spins around, you can look through the little slots like old-timey animation and you can watch the cat jump. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no one's ever done that before. And so it's just taking that idea and, and just having a theme and then having a grown-up approach to the content. So I'm not going to offend anybody, but we will have content that is for a modern world. And then tied in with that, then we've got product reviews and we've got uh, articles by people. So I've been really lucky in the first issue. I've got Betsy Greer, who coined the phrase craftivism. She's done an article for me. I've got a regular columnist called Spike Dennis, who recently went on a cross-stitching expedition to the Arctic Circle. And and just bits and pieces like wow. that. Then Wait, the- he went on a cross-stitching expedition to the Arctic What do you do on a cross-stitching expedition to the Arctic Circle? I, Spike's a genius. Um, I think what he mostly did was a lot of cross-stitching with ice or putting cross-stitches in ice. Oh my gosh, and various that's other amazing. Like that. I have to see yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. he's. A, I mean, I think Spike World is his website and Spike's a great guy and I really like him. And he's done some stuff that's really dark as well. Um, but he's really good. And so he's like my regular columnist. And it's effectively it is like a cross-stitch magazine, but it's just having a more modern approach. And, and the irony being that we've got two patterns of cats in there for the first. <laughs> it's not revolutionary you need, you need some cottages. Yeah, that's Honestly, great. honestly, <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, but it's, it's yeah. just kind of that idea. So just a modern approach. It's got nice design. It's on nice paper. It's 100 pages. You know, it's interesting to me because, you know, some people would say, well, why go, you know, to a paper magazine, a print magazine when you've been a blogger and it's digital and there's no distribution costs and no printing costs and no commitment, you know. But I think that really what we're seeing here is it's like all of your relationships that you've developed over all of these years since 2008, all of your knowledge, your understanding, all the people that you've interacted with, that you've featured, that are on your mailing list, um, you know, it kind of like comes to fruition now in this project. Yeah. And the fact that, uh, let me think, about 15 years ago, I became a town councillor. And one of the things I ended up doing was the town council newsletter. And that was where I first learned to use InDesign. And you just look back and like, in some ways, I don't know why I didn't do this like five, six years ago. But I think it is that bringing together of all these different elements and then having Kickstarter and the ability to get a project paid for in advance. You know, that is a massive deal in terms of this. Um, yeah, and it does. It's, it's just a culmination of all these different things. And, you know, I used to write a column for a cross-stitch magazine and I've waited for the whole sector to move on and they don't. And I understand the reasons that they don't. So I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to do it. And in the same way as like, I like buying records and there's a whole vinyl revival, there is that indie magazine revival. And we may make the patterns available for people to download as PDFs, but I'm not going to put the magazine online. It is going to be a you hold it in your hands kind of magazine because I still think that's important. You know, I want people to be crossing the pattern out in the magazine with pens and doing all of those sorts of things. So. Yeah, and I had um, I had Janine Van Gool, who is the editor and publisher of Uppercase Magazine and on the Ooh. show a little while back, and she said exactly the same thing that she just said, which is that 
uppercase will never be a digital magazine that she feels very strongly committed to print. So it's interesting to hear you say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I agree with you that there is something really, really lovely that will always endure about holding something in your hands. And um, I'm excited to see it. And if people who are listening want to check it out or want to submit a pitch to your next um, themed issue, where should they head to to do either of those things? I mean, xstitchmag.com is the website, which is very much a work in progress, but that's where you can order this issue and you can pre-order issue two, which is nowhere near ready yet. I know what it's going to be. It's going to be beats. So it might be music, but it might be neighborhood, but it might be heartbeats or wing beats and all those sorts of things. Um, And yeah, if people have got um, any submissions, if they're a designer and they want to get involved, I have quite high standards. Like, I'm not being funny. I won't take any old crap. But if someone's new... (laughs) If someone's new and interesting, I I mean, some of the people that did designs uh, for this issue have never done it before. And we had a backwards and forwards and I just helped them up their game to a point where they had came out with something really cool. So that's what I'm quite interested as well as having this vague like mentoring thing. You know, I don't I won't turn people away unless it's utter drivel, but I'm much more likely to challenge them critically and encourage them to kind of grow and develop as designers. So if people do, hello at xstitchmag.com is the email address. People can just email me with anything as long as it's not abusive. Awesome. Okay, good. That's great to hear. And um, and you have a couple of other things. You're a busy guy. I, before I get to those <laughs> other things, um, so it sounded like you, you, you had mentioned that you were being made redundant at work. So it sounds like you mm. lost your your full-time sort of day job. And I wondered whether you've replaced that since then or whether you're now doing this as your job. No, this is, this is now my job. I've become after, uh, eight and a half years of trying, I've become Mr. X stitch full-time. Um, and I'm just hoping it was, I working for a charity in the UK is always tricky. And a lot of the time, thanks to austerity measures and stuff, there've been lots of cutbacks. So there was an inevitability to it. And my redundancy package wasn't a lot, but it was enough to allow us a few months of me taking a chance. And I think had I not done the Kickstarter and had the response I'd had, then I probably would be having some other job now. But this has given us a little bit of a cushion. And I've been so blessed with not only the Kickstarter being successful and having 650 backers there, but the magazine's literally being posted out today and I've had over 500 pre-orders already. So it feels like I'm sort of waiting for it to kick in. And I do hope that people will be able to subscribe to the magazine um, and those sorts of things so that it builds this kind of steady income. Because all I really want to do is go around and just make people think differently about cross-stitch and have a bit of a laugh. You were saying about TNNA ages ago, there's a possibility I might be at that in January. And, you know, I'll just work my magic over there with an English accent and a bald head and stuff. Yes, and I, I, just... I think that would be a great move. And the, the winter show is going to be a sweet style show this year, which is going to be meaning it's mostly going to be in people's hotel rooms, which is sort of fascinating for the first time. But I also think that it's it's certainly a show more focused on cross-stitch and needlepoint than knitting and crochet. So it sounds like the winter mm. show would be the best one for you. And I think that would be a great move because that's a, such a good way to make those network you know, to do that networking in person and bring the magazine around. And it just seems like such a natural thing for cross-stitch shops around the country to carry. Mm, Yeah, and that's it. And so, you know, I'm hoping that the magazine can definitely be the thing that um, 
brings in sufficient income to keep a roof over my head, but also to enable other projects. Because I've got other things in mind. You know, I've I've set up a Twitch TV channel, so I'm hoping that at least once a week people can join me for some live streaming of Cross Stitch, which is about as hilarious as it sounds. Um, and just various other kind of online activities that I want to do to kind of get a bit of momentum going because it's a really vibrant sector online and the real world just needs to be aware of that. And I just feel like this magazine is a spark with which hopefully I can kind of like really get things going. Absolutely. And that just reminded me, I watched um, in preparation for this interview, I watched a YouTube uh, video of you must be a few years old now, but it was just you cross-stitching. Like that was it. And uh-huh. there were the, like your caption was like, if you can watch this all oh, the way yeah. through the end, you get a project. That was funny. <laughs> it was yeah, like that was cross-stitching. That was a project where it was, it was a sort of thing of, uh, if people complain about the price of handmade goods, we were like, right, if you can sit and watch us cross-stitching for five minutes, then you, you know, you can complain about it. It was, it was just kind of to make people realize how long these things take right. to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. And that was, you know, I wasn't even half as media savvy then as I am now. That was really funny. So, okay. So just tell us briefly about your book that's come out also around the same time as this magazine and also about an upcoming show that you're working on. Yeah. So we'll, we'll bang through these. Um, so the book is called The Mr. X Stitch Guide to Cross Stitch. I was approached by Search Press about two years ago to do this and I spent most of last year doing it and it's a a cross-stitch pattern book the patterns are all patterns that I've done but it's it's kind of more than that you know I wanted it to be a guide to cross-stitch so it explains a lot about cross-stitch it'll teach you how to cross-stitch but it'll also explain to you why you should cross-stitch so we have sections on color we have sections on glow in the dark thread which is one of my favorite things and you have patterns for instance, one of the patterns is the Empire State Building, but a lot of the outlining is done in glow in the dark. So when you turn the lights off, the stars come out at night and some of the windows light up and stuff like that. Um, so that's pretty groovy. We've got a section um, on thinking outside the hoop, which is where we're stitching on different surfaces like metal and plastic and stuff like that. There's a section on computer design, which gives you the basic overviews of, of cross-stitch design. You know, if you want to, we use a lot of pineapples as an excuse, but it's basically, if you want a really realistic pineapple, it might need to be really big and that will take a lot of time. If you want to do a quick pineapple, you're going to lose out because it's smaller and more pixelated and, and just talking around those kind of terms. Mm. And then there's a section called more than a hobby, where we talk about things like mindfulness. We talk about embroidery as a therapy. We talk about craftivism and we talk about embroidery as an art form. So it's really going into like, you know, cross-stitch being much more than just this hobby that old ladies do and it being a really vibrant and valid pastime. And then at the end of each section, I have an interview with what I call an outlier. So someone who's doing something really interesting in a particular subject. So for instance, with cross-stitch design, it's my friend, Lord Libidan, who does a lot of um, kind of video game themed cross stitches and 3D cross stitches and stuff like that. And in the uh, more than a hobby section, we interview Severia from Lithuania who cross stitches on car bonnets and things like that. So it's it's kind of going, here's how to cross stitch. Here's some of the reasons why you should cross stitch. And then here's examples of people who've really flourished within that context. And then fortunately, my friend Stacy, who's a food photographer, took the photographs and it looks blooming marvelous. Wonderful. That sounds terrific. And tell us the name of the book again, just so that people can go look it up. Yeah. So it's called The Mr. X Stitch Guide for Cross Stitch. I know you can buy it from Amazon and all good retailers and it's published by Search Press and you can buy it directly from them as well. Um, I often say to people, buy it now because you should or wait about two years and you'll pick it up in a charity shop for about <laughs> Um, okay. And then you have a show coming out as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, as if that wasn't busy enough. And obviously, three and a half month old daughter. Yeah, I'm doing an ex- <laughs> I know, I know. I'm doing an exhibition at a place called Farnham Pottery, which is in Surrey. And the exhibition runs from the 11th of August to the 2nd of September. And it's called The Mystery Stitch Guide to Cross Stitch, conveniently. Nice. But what I'm doing is basically, it's just an exhibition of cross stitch. And I've got some work from some of the people that are featured in the book. I've got some of the designs from uh, my book and some of the designs from the magazine. I've also chosen a few artists who have done work that I really like who aren't necessarily in the book. And then I've also got a selection of work from the archives of the Royal School of Needlework. So it's kind of this thing of just going, it's old, but it's new. It's like, it's dull. Well, not dull. It's kind of plain, but it's vibrant. And just playing off all these different things to kind of show you that it can be all of this different stuff. We've got a cross-stitch sampler uh, that was done by a girl called Anne, who was age 12 in 1887. So we've got one of those. And then we've got a panel lid that's got cross-stitch flowers embroidered on top of it. And we've got all kinds of bits and pieces in between. So... I don't know the last time anybody just did an exhibition that was just cross-stitch, but that's what I'm doing. Wonderful. And I think it's going to be That sounds so wonderful. And, and such a, I love the incorporating historical cross-stitch in there along with, I love when I go to a museum and you can see things across ages that are organized by theme or by type rather mm. than sort of just seeing everything from the Renaissance in one room. You know, like I love it when they sort of pull those things out and put pictures of boats side by side, you know, like I like yeah, to yeah, yeah, organize that way. I, I, I don't know, to me, my brain works better that way. So I think that sounds terrific. And um, I want to make sure that we get to your recommendations. You have three oh, yeah. things to recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip around. So the first one is um, something related to coffee. I know you're kind of a, mm. a coffee snob. So you wanted to recommend the AeroPress. I honestly, it's like my most precious thing. I, I don't, the thing is, I don't think I'm a coffee snob, but when you've had a really, really good cup of coffee in an AeroPress and then someone offers you a cup of instant coffee, like it's really hard. So I tend to go for hot water if I'm offered instant coffee. I've had AeroPresses for quite a few years. And then I was fortunate enough one time to go to Indonesia and another time to go to Guatemala. And like, bought beans that had been roasted that day, got them back home, ground them up, made a cup of coffee with an AeroPress, had a little cry because I was like, that's the best cup of coffee I'm ever going to have in my life. But I just love the AeroPress. And it's like, you know, French presses have their place, you know, cafetiers, coffee machines and all that. But the AeroPress just does the job. And I literally, like, the seal on mine went about six months ago and I had to Amazon Prime same day delivery to make sure I got another one because I was freaking out otherwise. All right, we're going to link to the one that you have so people who want to try it can can see which one you have. Um, see, the other thing just yeah. to interrupt is, is what I also do is then I buy them for like my mother-in-law's got one, my brother-in-law's got anywhere that I think I'm going to go more right. than once where I might get a cup of coffee. I just make sure I've given them one. It's like here's so a gift for you there. for me. Right? Honestly. <laughs> That's very smart. Um, Okay, so you wanted to recommend Mixcloud, um, which is what Mm. you like to listen to when you're working. Yeah, I really kind of got into it. I mean, there's lots of like the cloud-based music services and stuff like that. But what I like about Mixcloud is um, it's people that put together different mixes and you can kind of follow those people and then just listen to them producing content that suits. And there are loads of different genres as well. So kind of depending what mood you're in, if I'm like doing a bit of cross stitch or something, I might have like instrumental hip hop and you can type that as an, an, in as a tag and then you'll see different shows that you can choose. Or I quite like things like disco and funk and stuff like that. So if I'm like needing to smash through the emails in the morning, then I'll get some, a bit of funk on the go. And it's just like, 
people who've got better taste than me who put together these shows and then you can just listen to them like ad infinitum really and I just honestly I'm like on it all the time I just wish I had the skills to be able to make my own records. Mm, that's great. That's a great recommendation. And then your last one is an independently produced magazine that you had referenced earlier. It's called Stack. Yeah. So what Stack is, is it's not a magazine itself, but it's like a magazine subscription. Oh, so you I pay see. So you pay your money. And then what they do is each month they send you out a different independent magazine. So I've been a subscriber for a couple of years and I've had things like cycling magazines, architecture magazines, uh, there was one about uh, migrants and politics. They, what they do is they choose really interesting magazines, whether from a design standpoint or a content standpoint, and they just send you out a different one each month. So you never get the same one twice, but you're bound to read something that you've never seen before. And certainly when I was in the planning stages of my magazine, it was great to get all these different influences in terms of design and seeing what other people were doing, because it really inspired me to kind of move forward. Uh, one of the things I want to do with X-Stitch is make sure that each issue looks slightly different to the last you know, different in colour and maybe font treatments and stuff like that. And it's great to have a diverse uh, range that you can get via stack to kind of riff off of. So, yeah, I really recommend that because you just get to read something you wouldn't have found through your own travels. Yeah, and that's also would be an awesome present for somebody who's a reader. Mm. Get them a subscription and then Definitely. they're going to get treated to that all year long to uh, something mm. completely different month by month. I think that's terrific. Mm. Mm, that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Good recommendations. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. So um, thank you for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I so enjoyed talking with you. No, that's cool. It's been a real pleasure. It's been nice. I haven't podcasted for a long time, so it's good to get back on the old horse again. Yeah, I know. You used to have a podcast, so we didn't talk about that, but I'm, I'm glad you, you're back on and um, got your mic dusted off. So Yeah, <laughs> and you've, great. No. Yeah, that's great. So if you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast, I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Thank you to today's episode sponsor, Needle and Foot Fine Fabrics. This online fabric shop has an ever-growing collection of modern fabrics from Art Gallery, Andover, and Wyndham, among others. Specializing in curated fat quarter bundles, Needle and Foot makes it possible to collect your favorite lines without breaking the budget. And use that coupon code WALSHINAPS15 for a 15% discount on your purchase now through the end of September 2017. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.